this siege of Jerusalem back uh, 2,700 years ago, that if it had worked out the way everybody expected it to work out, today there would be no Judaism, no Christianity, and no Islam. To me, history comes alive when you see it through somebody's eyes. Screw all the battle going around them, it's time to get it on. And so the soldiers are freaking out because they're like, these damn horses are gonna give us away. They can't pull them apart, so they just shove their mouth with grass, trying to at least make them be quiet while they're having sex. Where are the low-value men? Like, what are what are all the low-value men up to during these trying times? Because the high-value men, they, I know they're around. They won't shut the fuck up. Low-value men, I have not heard a word out of. I'm starting to think I'm on their side. I think I want one of those. I want a low-value man. They don't make podcasts. I haven't seen one low-value man make a podcast. Do they not know how to use microphones? Maybe that's a good thing. That's that's hot. All right, I haven't seen, I've never seen a man use a microphone for good. Until now, everybody buckle up. It's low-value mail time with your host, Danny Polishchuk. Oh, boy, everybody. Welcome back to an all-new episode of Low Value Mail. It's Tuesday night. It's 9 p.m. on the East Coast. Who knows what time it is where you live. But welcome back to episode 73 of Low Value Mail. And this week, we are joined by a guest. I'm I'm always excited about our guests. I'm, I've been getting great guests uh, for the show. But uh, this one, I, I'm, I'm very excited about. Daniela Bolelli from the History on Fire podcast is going to be joining me uh, very, very shortly. Danielle is an Italian writer, university professor, martial artist, and podcaster based in Southern California. He's the author of several books on philosophy, martial arts, including On the Warrior's Path, and he hosts the hit podcast, The Drunken Taoist, and of course, History on Fire. And he's going to be joining us very shortly. He is currently working out. He is, uh, we were, I did a smoke before and he's, he's getting some reps in cause he goes hard. And before I bring him on just a couple things and then we will get going here. Uh, but so before anything, please like subscribe, leave a rating and review. If you're listening to this on your podcast app, honestly, it really does help. If you just go on Spotify, Apple, Google, whatever the heck, and just leave a review. Five stars, of course, unless you're a piece of shit. Uh, it really does help. Also, if you'd like to support the show, help me make this show longer, eventually four hours. Help me get a producer so that I can maybe screen calls one day and, you know, not do every single thing myself. You can support the show on Patreon uh, or Twitter.com slash Danny Jokes or X.com slash Danny Jokes. It goes to the same thing. Uh, subscribe. My premium Twitter thing that I've been doing. I've actually been posting some like behind the scenes stuff of um, sketches that I've been doing, which is I only post them there. And I just like Twitter. I'm literally on Twitter several hours a day. So if you have to choose between the one, Twitter is way more fun. Uh, so consider that. Next week, we got Joey B. Tunes. Uh, if you know him, I'm very excited about that. And August 22nd, Jeremy Kaufman. And then August 29th, we got the boys 
from War Mode rounding out the guests for the month. No bathhouse tomorrow as I'll be back in Canada, but I'll be back next week. And finally, if you live anywhere near my hometown of Burlington, Ontario, Canada, North America, I don't know if you put something after it, but I will be telling jokes headlining this Friday and Saturday night at Yuck Yucks. Uh, go to their website, yuckyucks.com. I think for tickets, yuckyucks.ca. I think it's yuckyucks.com. For tickets, if you want to come hang out, say what's up. Um, and that's about it. That, that's all I wanted to tell you. Let's get to the show. Uh, one moment, please. Everybody, while I cue this all up. See, if I had a producer, I wouldn't have to do any of this stuff myself, but such is life. I don't, I don't mind it, but I just really, really just introduced the potential for me fucking this up. Hold on. Look at that. We got two of me. Hold on. And one moment, please. All right. Here we go. Can you hear me, Danielle? I can hear you just fine. How are you Excellent. doing? Excellent. I'm doing very well. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much for coming on. I, I really uh, do appreciate it. I was just telling people you're getting some some reps in. You're you're hardcore, dude. You know, I spent so much of the day sitting down, writing, working at the computer that to stay sane, I take, uh, you know, every 20, 30 minutes I work, I get up, I get some reps in, lift some weights, do something so that I don't melt into the couch. And and it helps the balance, you know, yeah, yeah, when yeah. You're working a bunch, you don't have to take two hours off to work out. You just take a few seconds break here and there throughout the day and it does something. Yeah, that's the the Elon Musk system that he's been on. He says he doesn't have time to... You're actually an MMA guy, right? Like, you train and all that stuff. Uh What do you think about... This is totally off topic, but... Because Elon Musk is... is, uh, You know, he wants to fight Mark Zuckerberg. I'm like, he's going to get destroyed, right? Yeah, I think so, too. I think that's why I found (laughs) out suddenly he has like, oh, wait, my neck is hurt. I have to have surgery. I'm like, I think he started looking at some... uh, videos realize that his counterpart is actually training for real and uh, he's having second thoughts i mean not only is zuckerberg training for real he's like pretty jacked he's younger than him by probably a decade the only thing he has on him is size i guess he's probably but at at what point do you does size not become like in like in mixed martial arts right it's like size could be a little bit of a benefit but i imagine it could also hurt you if you're slower I think size is important when you are of similar level. You know, if you are roughly trained the same, similar skills, one guy is a lot bigger. Yeah, bigger guy is probably going to win. But usually among most people who are not pros, the gap in skill is so big that the size factor becomes considerably less important. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, Okay. Well, this is, this is, uh, that's interesting. Do you have have like uh, belts in, in, uh, what do you, what do you train? Jiu-jitsu? Yeah, I train uh, the main ones. Yeah, I have black belts in jiu-jitsu, judo. I did a style that was more like self-defense oriented called Sansu. It's uh, I like all of it, to yeah, be honest. Yeah. I like all martial arts. I, I, I considered briefly getting into it, and then like all my friends, they all get so injured. Like they're all yeah. just... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Just today I was feeling, I was like, fuck, I think I have a broken rib. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah, you do get injured. I mean, the only thing that I can say that's good about grappling is that at least it's not brain injuries. You know, right. you're not taking a 
punishment that you take with striking arts. Yeah. But you still take damage. That's yeah, sure. yeah. It's all like just these little nagging injuries. I mean, I have enough of those and I don't do any of that shit. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so just uh, briefly, if you could, could you tell people uh, just a little bit about yourself? And I guess because you're, uh, you're a professor, you're obviously mm-hmm. you have the podcasts. Um, just h- how did you, I guess, your origin story just briefly? So I moved uh, from Italy when I was 18, started studying for university. I lived here ever since in California. Um, I started writing books. I started teaching college. Eventually, I moved into teach specifically teaching history. And then one thing that happened was one of those weird uh, moments when the universe decided to open a door. At the time when, by the way, my life was just in shambles, stuff was going pretty bad. And all of a sudden, I got called back in 2011 to be a guest on uh, Rogan show. And to be honest, I didn't even know what podcasts were. I mean, I knew who Joe was, but I didn't know anything about podcasting. It was 2011. You know, what the hell do I know? I remember Brian Redman telling me, ah, it's kind of like radio, but you can cuss. And I was like, cool. <laughs> yeah, good. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I hopped on Joe's podcast and people like me, Joe liked me. So he had me on uh, repeatedly several times after that. And that kind of gave me an insight in uh, just how many people, how big was the medium already back then, let alone today, Yeah, how many people were listening. And so eventually I started putting two and two together and I realized, okay, that's just a different way of storytelling. Rather than, uh, I mean, I still like writing books, but publishing industry is not fun to deal with many times. So podcasting could be another way to uh, to do what I like to do. So I started with a podcast called The Drunken Taoist. That was more like a chatty podcast without a single theme, sort of whatever I feel like talking about that week. And then instead, I moved on to History on Fire. That's more me doing a deep dive into a topic, really having to do with history, studying like crazy. And when I know the topic well enough, then tell it in a way that doesn't put everybody to sleep. So, because, you know, most of the stuff I end up reading is not fun to read. They right. are very good sources, but they are not well written or fun. So then my job is to package together all the information I gather and make it a little more engaging. Interesting. So I, I'm curious if you've noticed something similar to this, because I, I, I don't think this is unique to me from and I've you know, I've seen instances of this. But the older I get, for mm-hmm. some reason, the more interested in history I become. Mm-hmm. And I think that is uh, somewhat of a common thing. I'm wondering, like, do you have any insight as to why? Because I've seen many people say this as well. Yeah. I mean, it's hard for me to know for sure, because I always like history. Like as a kid, to me, it was like a way for me to, it was part of my imagination. You know, I would just let my mind roam and play movies in my head about what it would be like to be in that place at that time in a culture so different from what I knew. So I always enjoyed it, almost as a child, uh, as a childhood game. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for me, it has always been a deal. But you're absolutely right. I have seen it as something that happens. People tell me, you know, never gave a crap all my life. And now I find myself interested in these topics. And uh, But I don't know why that is. Uh, probably because I don't have that experience. Because I have, you know, I've always been interested. Right, right. And so... You how long because because essentially you have uh, varying length and obviously, you know, you have three parts. Mm-hmm. Like how long does it take you generally? A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Typically to prepare an episode, I would say easily 100 hours going to an episode. 
because um, because the amount of research you have to do, you know, even just to record a two hour episode, it's a bunch. It's a bunch of research. So yeah, like when I do a three part series is because I had to spend maybe two months researching and now I need to, you know, I have so much material that I might as well stretch it out because because otherwise there's no way I can release on a regular basis because it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it would be a very different show if I were doing like, you know, read on Wikipedia, read a couple of articles and talk about it quickly. You can do a good show that way. People do it but it's a very different flavor. You know, these right. are deep dives that can only come when you have really read the topic in book after book after book and uncover multiple layers to the story. Um, so it's it's a bit of a different way of telling it. And do you, do you notice like a lot of contradictory things when you're researching thing? Like, yeah, because, you know, All there's the obviously the thing where everybody says history's written by, by the victors, right? Yeah. Like, do you find that sometimes you'll go and you're like, is there an instance where you're like, you, you know, you find, I, I, you know, I don't want to say like the loser's side essentially. And you go like, this is obviously like a way different. And then how do you kind of, um, uh, you know, combine the two? I mean, in some cases, in most cases, really, because most of the time we don't have nearly as many sources as we would like to really confidently make a call about what happened. So a lot of the time in the face of contradictory information, I go about it a couple of different ways. If I see, you know, a bunch of different sources will tell one story and only one tell a different story. And there's a pretty clear reason why this person would say something different. I'm like, okay, that's bias and probably not accurate. In some cases, when you can tell, I'll tell multiple stories. I'll say, hey, this is what we know happened, bare minimum information. This is what some people argue that happened. This is what other people argue that happened. I wasn't there. How the hell do I know? So you make up your mind, pick the story you want. This is, you know, this is as good as it gets in terms of having an educated guess. Right. But I usually try to be honest and not force an interpretation where I don't feel that the evidence fully supported. it. Right, right. And does, uh, like, does this stuff ever change? Like, will there be, you know, you're working, maybe even something that you've released where new information actually comes out that yeah. like, and w- like, where does that come from when it's, you know, a historical item, like something's unearthed or like, how does that? Yeah. Or maybe somebody shows you that a certain source that everybody has been quoted, they go back to the origin and say, you know, that this source actually doesn't show up in the early information. Somebody probably made it up 50 years later and everybody has repeated. And then you go look and you're like, oh, it actually checks out. You're probably right. Like, for example, there's a great, uh, I know you were telling me before we started recording, you have been listening to the Jack Johnson series about the first uh, African-American to become a heavyweight champion in boxing. There's a fantastic Jack Johnson story that I think may be made up that I eventually found. I think I opened the series with that. Where there's With that in Georgia, uh, when he's he's driving in Georgia? Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's, it's all, it's, you know, I can see that it's almost too good to be true of a story. And yeah. uh, I mean, hell, I'll still tell it as a legend in terms of how uh, why people would even believe it about him because he did carry himself that way. But probably the specific, but just to tell the story real quick, is like the tale goes that Johnson was uh, really like speeding in uh, when he drove his cars, got busted by a cop. The cop uh, tells him, uh, "Hey, you are speeding. You owe me X amount of money." 
and Jack Johnson uh, gives him twice as much. I don't know. I'm making up. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was, uh, he goes, you owe him 50 because you pay tickets yeah. on the spot. And he's like, you owe yeah. me 50 bucks. And he gave him 100. Exactly. And he's like, I don't have change for that. And Johnson is like, oh, no, no, don't worry. I'm going to be driving back this way in a few hours and I'll be doing the same speed. So yeah. let me just. <laughs> he's prepaying. Have and, you. Oh, so go ahead. Go ahead. No, and I mean, and that testified to Jack Johnson badassery and cut his character and he's being defiant is he literally true like stuff i've seen after recording the podcast makes me think mm, mm, mm. not entirely sure that's true sure. great story yeah there, there's a lot of similar lore around you know robert johnson oh yeah of course the the, the blues guitar player yep. like yep. the inventor of the blues who everybody says made like a deal with the devil yep. and <laughs> and all that stuff um that would that would actually be a cool uh he he's got a crazy story, like everybody. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, the that, crossroads. The crossroads. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. But he has a lot of stuff where you're like, no. I mean, there's one photo of him or something, yeah. you know, and like nobody really knows much about him. Um. So you you obviously know th this is actually something that I, I was kind of interested in because I I don't know a ton. Like I know a bit about history. I'm not like you know what I would consider mm -hmm. like you probably like an encyclopedia, but there's a lot of things right now where there's a lot of people trying to address historical um grievances from the past right you know and being that you know like you know it'll be like racism sexism or whatever right. and i find that sometimes like I, I guess my question is because you probably know this stuff do you ever see when people are saying stuff and you're like that's not actually true sure i mean yeah there's a ton of just made up history where people just make up stuff all together I mean, I remember I did an episode with Dan Carlin once and we were saying something that for me and Dan was like as controversial as saying the sun is hot. You know, it was like so backed by evidence, wasn't even a discussion. And a bunch of people got mad because uh, they had clearly been fed some serious propaganda on the topic. It was the whole topic of like... Uh, fascism and nazism being considered traditionally right-wing movements right and you know you had like the various dinesh the souza of the world arguing no no this is left-wing not that i give a crap because you know there are horrible totalitarian regimes that were left-wing so it's not to say that left-wing movements are great all the time they're not however let's be real you know nazism and fascism they themselves consider them conservative right-wing so it was nothing controversial, but in U.S. at this time, it was a controversial thing to say. And we were both laughing, like, <laughs> is, is even a thing? Like, if we said it 10 years ago, nobody would have batted an eyelash. But... Right. And it's just like in so short of a time, kind of the yeah. understanding of that thing. And now that, that actually brings me to, to something else, which so how do you see? Because obviously everything when you research is, is generally from books. Uh, I mm -hmm. imagine there, there's yeah. nothing else. Like, do you ever think about what? a historian is going to look like in 200 years from now, assuming there's still a planet or any of that stuff. Yeah. It's so hard to tell because the speed at which stuff has been changing is so dramatically fast over the last few years. And it looks like he's speeding up even more that, you know, somebody pop you in the 1600s and based on every, if you study history enough, you can probably predict what the late 1600s look like today. I would have a hard time predicting what's up 10 years from now. You know, it's like it would be so it's very, very hard to know what uh, what the future entails, both when it comes to history and everything else, really, because stuff is changing under our 
under our feet at an insane yeah, speed. Yeah, because I guess there's so much video evidence, obviously, yeah. even though that can be manipulated out, very yeah, easily yeah. as well. And so you have to think historians in, in 200 years from now, like, you know, maybe when they're covering the COVID pandemic, mm-hmm. they're going to be using video. But then there's like so much like because I imagine at least the one good thing about uh, covering something from, say, 500 years ago, like I was listening to your thing on uh, Caravaggio. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like th- there must be a finite amount of stuff for the most part. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that that's like kind of publicly available and like do you, do you go like do you have to go you know is there like a some sort of like vatican library or something similar to that where you you know like i mean doing stuff like that or is it just all like online and typically all online and books because the reality is that if you are gonna do that kind of research which is what you know the real historians do real historians tend to be awful when it comes to writing and communicating well what they research but they are fantastic researchers right they dig up the info they provide the rationale for why they believe this info is correct or not I tend to jump in at that level. I take what a bunch of researchers do, I studied it, and then I get to tell it to an audience that doesn't give a crap about 50 pages of uh, discussion of whether a tiny reference is accurate or not. You know? Right, because you're, you're just doing your storytelling, really. Which, yeah, which, yeah. Which is... so, so that's my side of history, whereas some guys are purely researchers. You know, They are not communicators. They don't storytell. They are purely those are the guys who are going to be digging in archives through dusty volumes to try to figure out stuff that nobody has covered and things like that. Yeah. And how far do you, you plan ahead uh, your topics? Try as much as possible because the reality is that it takes so long that sometimes if I cut it too close, I may not be in time. So I try to have at least a few months of material always ready. Um, Takes a long time. Tell you that much. That's the one, uh, the one problem sometimes that it gets really, really, but you know, I, there's so much material. There are like once in a while I go through my notes of topics I want to cover and there's enough material to last me 50 years, you know, right. Just right. Like it's just stories. And how do you like, how do you pick what uh, is just whatever kind of interests you at the time? Yeah, I'll look at, uh, depending how much time I have, what I feel I'm interested in that moment. If I have a short time and I realize that this is a good story, but there are really only a couple of books about it, great. I'll just read two books and get an episode out. In some cases, it's a great story, but there's so much written about it that I'll probably have to read the 10 to 15 books on the topic. That clearly I can only do if I already have enough of a advantage ahead on uh, my release schedule because i otherwise i can't afford to do it yeah yeah that's kind of interesting have you ever had something where there was just so much content where you're yeah. like you know what i'll just that goes on yeah the i did uh, i did the joan of arc series and i i probably read i don't know 10 to 15 books on her and i realized that there were maybe 150 published about her. Wow. So I was like, there's no way I'm going to read it all. You know, there's just no way. In the... So I just started picking the ones that everybody referred to, the main ones, that kind of thing, and tried to go for that. Because I was like, yeah, there's no way I can catch up. Yeah. And I imagine at some point there's diminishing returns. Like, you know, you might squeeze, squeeze out that last drop yeah. by reading the last 50 books kind of thing, right? Through once in a while, you run into something that makes you think that you still should read a bunch. Because, like, I give you an example. I've read about uh, Lakota culture and the Little Big Horn for just about forever, right? 
So I know the story. I've read uh, probably 40 books about it. And one time I started reading this one book that I never read. And there was a story and then I checked it and it was actually real, backed by the sources and everything. That was such a funny story that I was like, okay, it doesn't alter my perception of the overall tale, but it's like in the middle of the battle around them, it's time to get it on. And so the soldiers are freaking out because they're like, these damn horses are going to give us away. They can't pull them apart. So they just shove their mouth with grass, trying to at least make them be quiet while they're having sex. Wow. <laughs> I, I thought it was the funniest thing in the world. Like and the people writing about it were, uh, they were there like firsthand? Yeah, it? some of these guys survived it and they were eventually able to get out. So they told their story. And I was like, oh, this is <laughs> I never read it in previous accounts. And I was like, this is one of those details that add that extra layer and make the whole story hilarious. Right, right. That, that's very funny. Um, you cover a lot of uh, Native American stuff. And uh, so I, I'm actually from Canada, mm -hmm. right? I, I live in the U.S. now. But so uh, I don't know if you, you follow the difference between... Uh, I'm sure you, you know, but so like Canada is very much having this this reckoning with the past involving, um, you know, have the treatment of Native Americans. I, I don't really see the same thing here other than like, you know, they changed Columbus Day or whatever. Sure. And, the, you know, they like do, do you do you think that it's kind of just. That's not on the priority list, but they'll get to it here. Or like, what what is the difference specifically between Canada, I think, and, and the U.S. regarding that? I mean, they did a lot of the same stuff. Yeah, uh, they have two different governments, of course. So they can they both the history is slightly different, and some of the way they deal with it today is slightly different. Things have clearly changed from, let's say, the 1960s forward. Even if you watch movies on the topic, you know, just at the level of popular culture, most movies pre-1960s, with a few exceptions, they were all like bad Indians coming to scalp good white people and the cavalry arrives and saves the day. Whereas most post-1960s movies tend to have a little bit more sympathetic eye toward it all. Sure. So you know, culturally has changed. Some of the laws have changed. Like I'll give you an example. In US, it was a flat out illegal for some uh, Native American religious ceremonies to be practiced until the 1970s, which is really? hilarious. Yeah. When you think about, you know, the whole idea of freedom of religion, it's almost like the government was like, yeah, yeah, freedom of religions for the religions we actually like, not for your <laughs> dumb stuff. And, when was uh, that law passed? If I remember correctly, it's 1970s. It's either 76 or 78. But when was the but, law passed originally? Like, or it was just on the books forever kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't just a single federal law. It was like there were a bunch of local laws that essentially prohibited uh, native religious practices from the 1880s forward. And, you know, the degree to which they were enforced and what kind of thing they enforced varied over time. But yeah, there were a bunch of things that were just flat out illegal. I mean, they even made illegal some of their traditional dances that were not even religious or things like that. It was really? just a full program of uh, you guys are going to assimilate whether you like it or not. And if yeah. you don't like it, bad. That, and that was, I think, pretty similar with uh, what what happened in Canada. Like, did they have residential schools in the United States? Oh, yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. What are called the, here they would call them the boarding schools, but boarding it's the same. Schools? Yeah. And it was like the the run by like you know I think it was the Catholic Church or 
often, not always, but often. And the way it was done, it was, uh, you didn't have a choice. You know, it's like, if you don't want to send your kids to the boarding schools, the cops show up, arrest you, and then they still send your kids to the boarding schools. So it wasn't something that you really had a choice about. And the treatment in the boarding schools tended to be fairly awful. Granted, I mean, some people had, there are exceptions, some people had good experiences, but generally speaking, you would get beat up a lot for speaking your language, for example, you had to speak only English. For there was a whole series of infractions that you would get beat up for. So heavy physical punishment, heavy effort to really reshape the identity, eliminate the language, uh, give you a new name, forget whatever native name you had. Now you get you get pick uh, an Anglo name, and that's going to be your name. So identity was really changed at every level in the boarding schools, effectively creating a generation gaps because, you know, a bunch of kids who got beat up every time they speak a word of their tribal language are not going to want to teach their kids. Right. They still feel alienated from the culture of their parents. So really creating a gap between uh, the previous generations and the newer ones. Yeah. that And that was something similar that happened in uh, Canada. Essentially, they were just trying to get rid of their whole you know identity they're like you know that's that's bad and ours is, is the good yep. one do you know when they ended yep. in the united states the boarding schools uh, again it varies because some boarding right. schools still exist but of course are not the same thing as they used to be you know they're, they they're are... not forcibly taking no exactly nobody's getting forced anymore i mean there were other things too along with that like the um, but roughly sorry just to answer your question before i go off on a tangent yeah, 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 go roughly it seems to be uh, it, it started being much less enforced following the 1950s forward people still happened that they would get sent to boarding schools but there were more and more schools opened on reservations where things were done more locally so they were it became less common from the 50s forward to hear of the same kind of horror stories right right um and so you are uh, just, just it seems like just just from viewing the topics, you seem to be focused more on kind of individual stories versus kind of like events. Mm -hmm. Right. How, like, is there a specific reason for that? Or do you think just for the storytelling that you do, it just you like to kind of more of a, like a micro yeah, I like to me, history comes alive when you see it through somebody's eyes. You know, when you see, it's like if you were watching a movie, There, there's a main character, there are a few main characters. Those are the people who, through whose eyes you get to see the story. Much easier to tell a story, much easier to relate, much easier to bring it to life. Occasionally I'll do a story with no main character. Like I did one just because it blew my mind when I discovered it, but I did one where there really are no main characters, where it was a whole tale of... Uh, this siege of Jerusalem back uh, 2,700 years ago, that if it had worked out the way everybody expected it to work out, today there would be no Judaism, no Christianity, and no Islam. And so it's such a big what if, because it's like this one event that nobody knows about that what, changed. What, what was it? What was the... So it's basically the Assyrians, they start destroying left and right a whole bunch of uh, the, Jew the remaining Jewish kingdom, because there used to be two. One they already wiped out, there's one left, and they destroy pretty much the whole thing except Jerusalem. They are about to take Jerusalem, and the reality is if they'll take it, they'll spread the population throughout the Assyrian Empire, and these guys will probably lose their religious identity, much like their colleagues in the previous kingdom did. If that happens, 
then Judaism disappears. Of course, there would be no Christianity and Islam since they were born out of it. And instead, it doesn't happen for some random coincidences. And then by the time Jewish people are conquered by somebody else, something in their culture has changed so much so that they will preserve some of their ways, even in exile, in a way that they wouldn't have done at, at the first uh, siege gone well. So it's right. one of the stories that you're like, what the hell? One damn siege in the middle of middle of nowhere where nobody knew anything about it. It's a very minor event in history when it happens and it changes the entire history of the world after that. That's crazy. And what was the duration of that siege? Like, was that just a couple, like Probably a year? just a few weeks. Oh, even. just a few weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Is uh, these guys uh, sur um, surround Jerusalem? Uh, there's a theory that a plague breaks out among the invading army, so they are getting weakened by the plague. The Jewish king decided to throw them as much gold as possible to say, "Sorry, I screwed up. I'll be loyal from now on. Here, let me pay you off." These guys decide it's not worth to just wait to storm the place to just to kill this guy. They are getting what they want anyway. They are submitting anyway, they'll pay them anyway, and they are dealing with diseases, so they leave the siege and let them be. And wow. uh, but yeah, could have definitely gone another way. Wow, that's uh, do you have any other just just uh, one moment actually, just so everybody knows the uh, phone lines are open now, one triple eight nine four nine two nine six nine. If you have any questions for Daniela, uh, are there any other other things like that that just like these you know kind of moments in history that could have just like real like fork in the roads that you kind of like. The, like the ones that I would imagine for someone like you, you probably think a lot about because that's just yeah. your. Yeah, there's a bunch. The what ifs are funny because, and especially the more realistic the what if is, is like this could have really gone the other way. Like there's one that I enjoy. It's not as dramatic as what I just told you, but I enjoy. I got to tell the story of this guy, Thomas Morton. He was um, in the 1600s when the Puritans first showed up in uh, in New England and they set up Plymouth Colony and everything. This guy set up a colony very close by, but it was the opposite of the Puritans. These guys were having drunken orgies with the native tribes. They were cooperating with the tribes. They had full religious tolerance. They abolished servitude and slavery. They were very, very different path. And the only problem is that these guys didn't get their act together. So they didn't, didn't have a very strong militia. So when the Puritans got annoyed with them, they just squashed them and sent them packing home. But this was an example of a bunch of British people who clearly had radically different values and priorities from the way the Puritans wanted to run the show. And realistically, a bunch of people who would show up to North America, would take a look at Plymouth, all being very stern and severe in its law, take a look at these guys and they would want to go to these guys. So it's entirely possible that the foundations of what would become the United States could have gone a very different way in terms of priority and values. And instead, of course, the Puritans won out. But um, so, you know, there are those moments in history where you go, hmm, I wonder how we would have played out at, uh, at his zagged rather than Ziggin in this occasion. Right. I feel like that's almost its own genre of... Uh, mm -hmm. fiction is like it's almost like the man in the high castle yep. but yep. but other stuff you, you uh, I heard you talking somewhere where you're trying to develop like um, a script for either like a film or a TV you're saying mm -hmm. you can't really talk about it but it, do you ever um, 
like do, do you ever uh think of that genre essentially of like the the what if his the historical sure. what if yeah i mean historical fiction is so fun you know yeah. it's, it's an awesome the what ifs are really fun historical fiction in general is fun because it allows you to fill in the blanks of the stories where we only know a and f and we don't know anything in between and so fiction allows you to make it up in a way that clearly as a historian you can't because you're like well we know a we know f we don't know what's in between and you have to leave it at that when you play with fiction of course you are free to make things up right right uh, so to me there are all ways to engage with the material like i love uh, movies i love actual history in the books i love movies about it i love literature about it hell i love even uh, video games about it have become insanely good in the past few years you know some of the video- like like yeah. what like the red yeah. dead redemption and stuff yeah red dead redemption is amazing ghost of tsushima is fantastic it's set during the mongol attempted invasion of japan there's all the Assassin's Creed. They are a little thinner story in terms of plot, but they are fantastic in terms of the reconstruction of what the world may have looked like. I mean, I was just a month ago, I was in Venice, Italy, and I was telling my daughter about the game. And so I pulled out this old Assassin's Creed and we start playing it. And I can show her exactly the corner where we were standing in Venice for real. I can show her that same exact corner in, in the, the game. game constructed perfectly right wow. it's just just as it is imagining what it would have been like 500 years before and i'm like this is awesome and i had that as a kid i would have liked history even more <laughs> if that's possible I, I assume do you um i know this is i don't know if this is controversial in the history world but i i read probably 10 years ago that book the um the people's history of the united states mm-hmm. by yeah. howard zinn how is that because i've heard I guess that he considers it the book that should be taught mm-hmm. kind of the history that should be taught. And it's like, you know, basically like Columbus was this genocidal maniac and all this stuff. Um, do you have any like thoughts on that specifically? I on mean, the book I think in general? The, like, the book is a reaction to the way that stuff was taught before him. You know, things usually don't happen in the vacuum. There's a dialogue going on. And, you know, the way history was taught uh, up until shortly before the book came out tended to be very one-sided one way. He clearly is very one-sided the other way. He's trying to show you all that what the other guys left out. It's not the most nuanced project ever in the sense that he's really being like, oh, you guys played it all white. Let me show you all black. The right. reality of course, is more complicated than that. I think it was a necessary book at the time in terms of showing that there was another side. Of course, you don't really gain in nuance by just flipping the script by turning all white to all black. because The reality is much more complicated than that. But, you know, I think for the time when it came out, did a good job. You know, yeah. it was useful for sure. Now I probably would think, well, okay, once we agree that, yeah, the whole uh, Columbus as a hero, that discover, you know, all that stuff, once the mythology is already clear that we don't believe it anymore, now we can be a little more nuanced. You don't have to hammer it so hard on it. And and do you have any, like, historical figures that you think we're going to, you know, soon be seeing differently, similar to how Mm. Columbus... I mean, I guess it depends who you talk to, right? Because there's a bunch of, uh, like to me, when I look at, for example, recently I was doing, I'm preparing a series about El Salvador in the 1980s. 
Okay. And so I got to look at the presidencies of both uh, Carter and Reagan and their foreign policy. And I mean, man, it's just, it's beyond atrocious. It's so bad that it's hard to put into words how bad it is. In regards the, to El Salvador or just in general? Yeah. In regards to El Salvador well, specifically. I, I, I have a friend whose family like escaped from there and yeah. um, like it's, it was, I mean, it's bad now. Like it's, it's, yeah. it's very bad now, but then it was like really, really bad. Yeah. And the thing is that, you know, Reagan is like the conservative hero. Carter is on a liberal side seen as the nicest president ever who then spent his life building houses for the homeless and stuff like that. And, you know, I mean, maybe that stuff is true. Maybe on a personal level, they had a certain charm or maybe they are even pleasant guys to interact with on a personal level. I have no idea. But when you look at the policies they sponsored, and, you know, I intentionally picked that topic because that way it's not a biased thing where I'm picking on one side or the other. This is one Democratic president, one Republican president. And they both engage in behaviors that should be, you know, you should be prosecuted in a military court. <laughs> in, yeah. in just so bad that it's just like... I mean, essentially, just to make the story short, is they both end up supporting that squads, knowingly supporting that squads that will murder, rape, and torture their way through El Salvador for the remaining years of the civil war. Because the official justification is that, oh, we need to support them in order to defeat communism. There, never mind that the justification is not a great justification because it's like, okay, I'm going to support this genocidal maniac because I'm afraid of these other genocidal maniacs. It's like, call me crazy, but that doesn't seem like a great alternative. But the funniest part is that they don't really stop communism that way. If anything, they help the growth of communism because, you know, if you're a Salvadorian peasant who's oppressed like crazy... And all they are asking is just to be treated a little less shitty, you know, to just your for your life to get better by 10%. And the response you get is, we'll send the army and just murder your children in front of you next time you speak up. If that's the only alternative that the existing system give you, and, you know, the only other people against it are communists, you're going to join that side, not because you like communism. You don't know crap about Marx or communism or... It's just that you know that these guys will shoot you in the head for speaking up and these guys are fighting them. So in a weird kind of way, a lot of the Carter and Reagan policies pushed a bunch of people toward communism by not supporting an alternative that would be slightly more humane in a capitalist approach. You know? Yeah. And, and was El Salvador strategically important or was it strictly just the communism thing? They're just like, yeah. this was just when communism was still like you know the just the worst thing and they're just like any, yeah, any way yeah, to snuff yeah. that out uh, essentially Correct. and don't get me wrong i get it i mean you look at what communist regimes have done throughout the 1900s is atrocious right so i get that but what they did didn't really help that outcome if anything built up some communist resistance in a bunch of countries where it wouldn't have been needed and in the process of doing that, they supported right-wing dictatorship in a, in a, for fear of left-wing dictatorships. It's like, you're still supporting monsters, you know? It's not... But in any case, that's just a very specific example. Like, overall, when you look at the history, like, that got me thinking about, like, U.S. presidents, and I'm like, I mean... 
and presidents of most nations most of the time, and they are gangsters realistically. You're not looking at people who are out to improve the world in any way, shape, or form. You are looking at the heads of crime families writ large. Yeah. And again, it's not just about US or picking on US because the same thing happened in most just, countries around the world. Right. Just the heads of all countries, essentially. That game of power is played. Nobody who is a decent person got to play that game. Right, right, right. I actually have a question from from um, one of the viewers here. It's from Jim. It says, this is actually related to the communism thing, thing essentially. It says, given the historical reality of communism and the suffering, human suffering that it brings on, do you have any idea of the current means to better educate young people on the political system uh, that they ignorantly prefer and like i live in brooklyn so like there's a lot sure. of people who will openly say you're like they're like i'm a communist which is right. crazy like because my parents like my parents are from russia yeah and yeah, yeah. they're just you know the the number one thing that you you always hear people who left communist countries saying is you're like nobody ever goes like tries to leave to them essentially oh, right it's oh, only one way yeah. essentially yeah. other than the odd misguided person sure. who like sure. thinks they're going to some you know like you know a haven or whatever and then after a year they're like i made a huge mistake yeah yeah and no, I, I mean yeah go ahead. i think the problem is that most of the time when it comes to political or economic ideologies people choose them because they don't like somebody else so it's very much the the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing and so the reason why somebody, for example, will prance around and going like, I like communism, which when you look at the record, communism has been awful throughout the world. Most of the time is because they have some sometimes legitimate criticism of uh, certain forms of capitalism that are completely unaddressed within the system. So rather than going like, okay, this system may work for A, B, and C, but it's terrible for D, and F, they decide, okay, since I have no way to address D and F because I find this op stern opposition to my points, I have to go to a, a completely different ideology that will attack them and it's their enemies. And it's the classic thing that happens all the time. You know, it's like classic enemy as my enemy is my friend, where in order to pick on one side that you don't like, and sometimes for good reasons, you decide to swing completely on the other. So to me, the reality of everything, not just politics, not just communism, is the thing that we need the most in any discussion and in any level of education is nuance, is teaching people that just because A is bad and B opposes A does not mean that B is good. Right. You know, it's like, yes, you're right. What A is doing is awful. No, B is not a better alternative. And there is why. You can actually acknowledge these two things that one thing is bad and something that opposes it is also bad and vice versa. One thing has a good point, but doesn't fully get it. And some... so to me, it's like being able to have discussion that are now waving a flag of like, I'm a communist, I'm a capitalist, I'm this, I'm that. To me, that's like children arguing, you know, it's just such a bullshit level of intellectual like it's not there's right, there's right. nothing sophisticated about that way of thinking. So to me, it's like really looking at case by case and digging in the nuance. I think nuance is one of the most important words that we need to hammer on over and over again. Oh, okay, one last second. We got a call here. One moment, please. Hello, thanks for calling. Low value mail. One moment, please. Well, I connect you and. 
All right, you're on with Daniela. Who am I speaking with? Hey, Danny, it's Format. How are you doing? Hey, good. How you doing? Doing great, doing great. Uh, so, Daniel, it's uh, nice to see you on the podcast. I actually just found out about you uh, today when I found out you were going to be on the greatest podcast of all time. And uh, <laughs> it's, uh, I, I did a little bit of research on uh, what you're all about, and uh, I was pretty impressed. You seem like a hella chill dude. So, <laughs> Thanks, um, man. Yeah, there was um, there was a few things uh, I found uh, particularly interesting. Well, first off, I believe you're a fellow. I don't know. I don't know. If fellow is the right word. You're a bit of a Taoist. Uh, sure. Is that right? Yeah, I like. Uh, I find Taoist philosophy to be extremely applicable. You know, I find Taoist yeah. ideas to be something that uh, are. I don't have to believe in it. I just look at the way the world is, and I'm like, oh yeah, that principle checks out with the reality I see around me. Absolutely, yeah. No, I found uh, like just a few years ago, I, someone was talking about it and was like really recommending it, and I was like, you know what? This guy is selling it real good. Let, let me check it out. All right. So I went and uh, I went and grabbed a copy off Amazon, and mind you, and I, I'm a, I'm like a stone cold nihilist. Like, uh, in, in, like the, the optimistic type of nihilist, you know, I right. j- j- just clarify because a lot of people get all kinds of different ideas about what nihilism is, what it isn't. Uh, the way I look at it is, it's just kind of like, like atheism plus, right? It's just like you, you, you start with, uh, all of this scripture might be fall, uh, uh, you know, m- m- might be full of shit. So how do we just be moral without, some scripture telling us how to be moral, right? So I I look at nihilism that way. It just starts with, okay, we're not going to take our morality from scripture, so let's develop it on our own. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and from then on, I just, uh, there's an excellent video by, I think, um, Kyrgyz thought that this channel on YouTube that makes these cool cartoons. Um, uh, Wait, what's your, what's your question there for it? Oh, uh, yeah. So, uh, so I, I was getting to, uh, uh, the Tao Te Ching, uh, basically, you know, saying that e- even as, uh, even as someone who, uh, who's a stone called nihilist, it's, uh, it's extremely fascinating how just reading that book, like almost on every page, like I, I, I agree with just about everything in there. Mm-hmm. It is a fascinating book. And Denny, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. I, I've just, read some of it. Yeah. I've never read the entire thing though. Yeah, it, it's it's really cool how like it, it applies uh, from from way back in the day, uh, from like thousands of years ago. It, it reads as if someone could have written it yesterday, and like even some passages like, oh, this thing is uh, you know like like these uh, these cops are getting out of hand. You know, the police needs to be uh, needs to chill out. Like uh, there's just all kinds of like really really interesting uh, uh, interesting ways that it applies to our world today, and uh, I'll. Yeah, and I, I was just wondering, like, what is, what, what sort of your takeaway from Taoism on, uh, yeah, like, just, I wanted to hear from someone who's uh, as uh, as experienced in it, because it seems like you've been into it for a while. Um, right. How do you, um, how do you apply it? Uh, do, do you think there's, a, do you agree with anything in the book, Um Yeah, I see where you're going. Yeah, I think like to me, it's extremely 
to me, Taoism is not something that I proclaim like I'm a Taoist or something like I'm embracing some identity. To me, Taoism is like it's at the roots of my way of thinking and viewing the world to the point that I feel that I resonated with certain ideas even long before I read any Taoist text. To me, like there's a natural level to Taoism that you don't have to have read it anywhere to actually apply certain principles. And those principles to me get to be applied in anything, whether it's interactions with human beings, whether it's in politics, whether it's in how you work out, whether it is, you know, one place where I see it a lot is in uh, parenting, in raising kids. You know, you're going to go into, there are every other book, you get one parenting book that tells you, you need to be strict and lay down the law. The next one tells you it's all about the flexibility and this and that. And everybody has their pet favorite theory. And the reality of what Taoism shows you most of the time is that in so often it's always context dependent. Is like what's what's good advice in one environment for one kid may not be a good advice at this, a different time for the same kid or for or for a different kid. You know, it's like some kids need more structure, and you should be able to read the room and realize that that's what they need. But if you try to apply the same model to another kid, you're just gonna piss them off and encourage them to rebel in the process. So again, you need to read the room and realize that's good advice for somebody else, not for this kid right here. With this person, I need to go another route. And so what I like about Taoism, it's its lack of dogma. It's uh, It encourages yeah. you to think on your feet and to figure out what the solution is, not from here to forever, which is how the ideologies are created, but rather in a very specific context and say, okay, in this context, this is what's going to lead to the best outcome. But in the next yeah. context, maybe I'm going to drop everything that has worked for me in this one occasion and I'll do something else because the reality is that there are different situations. So, like I often use the metaphor of surfing. It's like there is no, if you are surfing and you are catching a wave, it's the solution is not always lean to the right by 40 degrees. It's like, well, it works some of the time. And other times you're going to fall right over. So your ability as a surfer is to read the wave, to read the energy of it all, and to make this tiny adjustment one after another after another in real time. And that's to me yeah. what Taoism is. That's to me what living is, you know, the ability to be nimble enough in your mindset to make choices quickly as things are happening, not relying on an ideological dogma. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's what I dig about it, too. It's like, a, it's like a timeless text that's not full of, like, some kind of ancient stories that might be true, might be false, might be full of it. It's just, for the most part, like, really applicable uh, life lessons, and it's pretty chill about it. Yeah. Uh, and now, a little bit of... Uh, uh, so, uh, so I had two questions about... Uh, the, the, there's one that's really cool for this podcast that I think people might enjoy, and then I had a... Uh, but before that, just a question about, I, I saw you have a book that is uh, pretty provocatively titled uh, called uh, Create Your Own Religion, a oh, how-to yes. book without instructions. I yeah. haven't had really any chance to look much into it. I've just been working all day. I work from home, but I heard about the podcast, looked, looked you up a little bit, saw that, and uh, j just saw the tiniest, briefest uh, description of it. But can you... Uh, uh, can you elaborate a little bit on what, what what is it all about? Sure. It's kind of like the Bruce Lee approach to religions, you know, like how Bruce Lee back in the day was very much 
dissatisfied with the established styles of martial arts because they felt like, okay, this style has this one good thing and this, this other style has another good idea, but they are too dogmatic in requiring people to you only fight in this manner. And the Bruce Lee approach was like, look, every style has a bunch of tools that are useful, but the reality is that most of the systems also have contained a bunch of crap that doesn't work. So almost as a good scientist, you should explore, research, pick the stuff that seems to work, mix it together with other stuff that needs to work and leave behind the stuff that doesn't work. When it comes to martial arts, it's great because you see immediately whether stuff works or doesn't. You know, there's an immediate feedback from reality. When it comes to religion or philosophy, of course, it's more complicated. However, I do like the idea of uh, picking and choosing from multiple sources, philosophies, religions, political ideologies, whatever that may be, to create your way of life, a way of life that works for you while at the same time remaining open to constantly change it. As more information come in, as the context changes, be ready to drop stuff that work for you at some time and evolve with it. So that's kind of the approach is I look at major world religions, pick the stuff that to me seems to have worked well, and also highlight the stuff that has really not worked well and how certain ideas can be absolutely toxic and uh, sort of try to separate what what I find valuable for what I find not valuable. Of course, that's a personal choice. You know, I'm not expecting anybody else to feel exactly the way I do, but it's a process to encourage people to, rather than embrace a tradition altogether or condemn it altogether, it's just, look, you know, most traditions are made of very contradictory ideas. See which ones resonate for you, if any, and which ones seem to be complete crap that lead to terrible places. It's almost like the be like water thing. That, yep. uh, yeah. Kind yep. Of, right? yep. Um, all right. All right. Format. Anything else? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I dig oh. it. I'm, I'm going to have to check it out for sure. Now, uh, the last thing I think this podcast, uh, the podcast viewers might enjoy. I heard you talk on a different podcast about a story about your grandma, who was a bit of a baddie uh, from oh, what yeah. I got. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, there was something involving bombs or something if you can uh if you can tell us that story that sounded fascinating to me and i'll, I'll let you go on that note though yeah 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 so the um, in world war ii my grandmother was a teenager and she um her boyfriend was a partisan fighting against fascism he got murdered. She did not take it well and then joined the resistance and spent the rest of the war trying to blow up as many fascists as possible with bombs. So, yeah, she has a pretty crazy story because a bunch of her friends were captured by Nazis and executed. She went pretty close to getting captured. She would carry weapons. She would smuggle bombs. She would do all sorts of stuff actively fighting against uh, fascism and Nazism. And, you know, I remember my grandma, as she always said this, she's a nice lady, but she always said this kind of heavy vibe around her. And then when I started finding out more about her life, I was like, well, no shit, I can see why, you know, <laughs> she went through some really heavy thing as a young woman. I mean, I remember even like, when I was little, she would take me to play basketball at this one gym in Milan. And later, she never said a word about it. And later, many years later, I found out that it's the same stadium where a bunch of her friends were executed. So I can wow. only imagine what it's like where she's there bringing her grandson to play some ball. 
and she's probably looking at the wall in the corner and seeing that's where I would have ended up if they caught me and that's where my friends were murdered X numbers of years ago. So it's like pretty heavy stuff, crazy stuff for sure. Crazy, crazy. All right, thanks for that. Yo, awesome. Check you later. Peace. Yeah, I'm actually, um, I'm, I'm going to, my, it's my grandmother's 98th birthday on uh, on Friday. I'm, I'm going to visit her. She's, she's from Russia. And it's the same, like, I always thought about this a lot, that people, especially, you know, older, but from that kind of part of the world, they just have all these crazy experiences like she escaped um like she was in russia and she you know escaped the nazis or whatever and then they went to siberia and they like took a train to siberia and she's like on the train they stopped at like some town where they were all housed and she's like they put her in uh in these farmhouses or whatever and then she's like the one beside it had a bomb dropped on it and like everybody died and like literally next door and you're just like i can't believe i even exist when you hear that stuff all right we got another call one moment please hello thanks for calling Low-value mail. One moment, please. Who am I speaking with? I need Jay. Jay, all right. You are on with Daniela. Go ahead. Hey, um, how are you guys doing tonight? Very good. Nice. Um, I just have a question, uh, more like something that I hear constantly. Um, people uh, in favor of communism say it's actually never been tried. That that's why it's never been successful because it's it's never actually been earnestly attempted or actually given a a real chance to actually um, do what they claim to do. Yeah, I never what's understand the, when people the, say what's that. What's the thing I could say? It's so well, common. That's like the most common thing yeah. I hear people saying that it's just, if they let it happen, it would work. It's kind of the same thing. With, as how, the, how, how do uh, I how do I rebuttal that? Well, it's the same thing as free market capitalism, right? That there is no such thing as fully free market capitalism. And so there's both of these ideologies deal with a utopia of what it would be like in a perfect world. Because the reality is that most capitalism has never been the kind of free market capitalism that people talk about. It's always regulated by government with government subsidizing one side or another So the reality is that they are both mythologies that will never really exist in reality. And one thing, especially when it comes to communism, that really doesn't check out in terms of functioning well, and that's what I think is the biggest Marxist mistake in the analysis of history, is the fact that Marx expected communism to work in some state-level society after capitalism. If anything, the one places where you can see communist ideas, even though they are not communist because they are not state-run, but they where you can see them applied is they are in earlier society, you know, in a tribal society where everybody knows each other, where the people of the tribe are your extended family. Of course, you are going to have a system more based on sharing. Of course, private property will be at a bare minimum. Of course, because these are people that you care about, that you love, that you will do whatever is needed for them. In a system where there are millions of people and you don't know who the hell is your next door neighbor, let alone, you know, the idea where suddenly you work like a dog and you start looking at other people who are not working as hard. And so you don't want to do it. And it's way harder to make something like that work in a large society compared to a small society. In a small society, you could. In a face-to-face community where everybody's committed, everybody's friends, everybody, 
that kind of idea would work, but then it wouldn't really be communism because it's not this government-run entity, it's something else. No, it sounds um, like family. Exactly, exactly. It's more like yeah. extended family, okay. like a tribe, yeah, at the tribal yeah, level. Yeah. Well, yeah. 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 I mean, all you got to do, I'm telling you, is you just I, 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 even the people who say that, like they wouldn't believe it. But all you have to do is go have them talk about communism to someone who lived under it. Yeah. And like you just you see this just bitterness, this like visceral bitterness in their face when they just like rehash the, any of the, the Cubans in Florida. Oh, of course. The that's Cubans why they all vote Florida? for. Tr- that's why they all vote for Trump. Oh. because. They're because, all Republican, and most Hispanics don't understand. And it's like, because well, they lived it. <laughs> yeah, because they're like, we're not voting for anything that'll ever bring me even like an inch back to that. They're like, I'd rather be the opposite. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I uh, mean, the Che Guevara is a hero. And I recently started to like do my own research, and it's like, wait, he wasn't that great of a guy. <laughs> yeah. He's almost become this like pop culture figure to a degree where people don't even really care. Yeah, he's just on a shirt and you think, Oh, if I wear the shirt I'm cool and I'm Yeah, it's just like I it's become its own Yeah. Like it's just become a way of signaling like your identity essentially in a certain fashion where people are like they don't really think much past that. Yeah, um, well I guess yeah, the the rebuttal is speak to someone who's who's been Oh, for sure. That well, I feel like well, yeah, yeah. That, that helped out a lot. All yeah. right. Take care. I have to have some conversations with these uh, coffee shop people. I see all the time. <laughs> all right. Thanks. Um, do you still, uh, you still teach obviously, right? Yeah. Yeah. And do, do you uh, like, are, is it, are, are you just teach? Do, like, are you back in class or, or is it over Zoom? A little or? bit. Um, a lot of it. I'm online. Okay. I do go these days. I'm going like one day a week face to face. Okay, cool. Have you how, how long have you been teaching uh, for? Started teaching in two thousand one, so it's been twenty two years. And so, have you been noticing like a big, uh, big difference, like in terms of the political temperature and all that? Like, what kind of how oh, people? Sorry, no, I thought you were going somewhere else. No, political temperature, not so much, to be honest. I didn't really like. I hear about it a lot about oh, universities being wild and crazy, this and that. I hardly ever see any of that in real life. What I have been noticing is the difference with the past in terms of um, social life. You know, it's like back a few years ago, I would walk into class and there would be like a full party going on where everybody's talking to each other. And I would have to almost be like, hey, guys, let's get to work now. Now is like you can hear a pin drop. Nobody talks to one another. People walk in, they sit separate. The class ends, they all go their separate way. And I just feel it as monstrously lonely uh really? granted not where it's like that but the tendency i mean i think is a social tendency that, which is where we're going anyway to become much more individualized less social and all of that and i see it in a dramatic fashion among my students and and is that you just think like uh technology related technology related uh as as a society, we privilege work above all else. So it's like if you, you know, if you build as a society where the idea is if there's a great job across the country, drop everything and go, of course, it's a society that's going to invest less in social relationships because social relationships become disposable at that point. Technology has uh, definitely increased that. And then, of course, three years or whatever long of COVID didn't help in that regard either. Yeah, but you don't notice, like, are there ever any topics when you're, you know, you're considering 
uh, teaching that you think might cause, you know, n- nothing like that? Because you hear about that in some, you know, maybe it's like super liberal arts colleges or something. I don't know that exactly. That tends to be more true, exactly what you said, like in tiny colleges that are private, liberal arts, that you hear more of the stories happening. And also, I think some of the way people come across is uh, dogmatic, regardless of which way they, which side they support, is they come across as purely trying to make a point from one side. And so somebody from the other side is going to give them backlash and they're going to get into a fight. My approach to a lot of this stuff is really not ideological in the sense that, I mean, I teach like one scene that was super controversial, particularly post 9-11 is in 2005, I started teaching uh, history of religions, which, you know, you're bound to piss off everybody. when. And you that seems about... like a pretty normal kind of course that you would have in a college, surely. Yeah, but the reality is that the odds are high that you're going to put the finger on sensitive spots and people are going to blow up. You know, I never had a problem because yeah. the reality is that from day one, like I tell them, look, I'm not here to praise or talk shit about any one religion. I'm not. The reality is that any one religion you identify with, there's one thing and there's its opposite under its cover. You know, within Christianity, you have super conservative Christians, super liberal Christians, gay Christians and Christians who think homosexuality is the ultimate sins. Uh, uh, you know, take any issue and you're going to find Christians on both sides of it. And same thing goes for for any other religion. So when you hear a label, it's a big overgeneralization. You know, most of this stuff doesn't really mean shit, you know, Christian or Muslim or this is like, there are so much variation within each of these things. And same thing when it comes to political ideologies, people get stuck on left wing, right wing, uh, this, that, or the other. It's like, what? Let's talk about issues. Because right. when you're stuck thinking about big ideological systems, you are bound to say stupid shit that's overgeneralizing reality. Let's talk about specific issues and what works and what doesn't on specific issues. I'm more interested in a pragmatic approach than in an ideological one. And do you talk like your, um, I guess, like the, the demographics of your students, is, is, is that uh, mostly men? No, I mean, in class, uh, podcast, yeah, it tends to be heavier on the men's side. It's probably 80, 20. Okay. But like in the schools, no, it's probably, if anything, there are a few more women. It's probably 55, 45 women or 60, 40 women. Roughly similar, but slightly tilted on the women's side. Gotcha. Okay, we got another call. One moment, please. Hello, thanks for calling Low Value Mail. One moment, please. And... You are on. Go ahead. You're on with Daniela. Hello. Um, So my my first question is, uh, how far back in history do you go? Like, do you focus mostly on the last 500, 2000? What, like, how far back do you go? I I tend to range all over the place, both geographically and time-wise. Like I did an app, one of my very early episodes is a story from some like 5,000 years ago about this... uh, body that was discovered in Italy, very well preserved in the Alps. And and so, of course, that's more an archaeological story than it is a history thing, because there are no documents from back then. There's nothing written down. And, you know, it presents its own challenges, but it's fun in another way. So, no, I go from all over the place, from thousands of years ago down to 30 years ago. 
Okay. Uh, my next question, um, you have mentioned uh, a lot of the same things that I've noticed in history. I mean, you talked about the Indians essentially having their history erased. Chat mentioned the same was done to the Irish. Uh, you've talked about how it's very common for decades or centuries after the event that probably were just added by that person and, and a bunch of other things that you've mentioned as well. And so the conclusion that I've come to in my interest in history is that anything beyond 500 years ago is incredibly unreliable. Sure. And I don't believe the mainstream narrative hardly at all. Not that it's 100% devoid of fact, but I, I think it's uh, like because of all the reasons you mentioned that it's, it's impossible to trust it, but then there's also all the contradictions. Um, so yeah, what, what, uh, how solidly do you follow, I guess, the, the mainstream narrative and um, how open are you to things like Atlantis or, or other so-called out there ideas? I mean, to me, everything is uh, case by case. You know, it's like a look at each theory and each idea and see what's there to back it up or not. Like I did, uh, in regards to what you're talking about, for example, I did, uh, I think I did two or three, I don't remember, two or three podcasts with Graham Hancock, who clearly has very different ideas regarding prehistory and those and so on and so forth compared to the mainstream. Um, what do I think? I don't know, to be honest, because, you know, I look at the evidence of what sort of the mainstream side presents. I look at the evidence that Graham presents. Graham definitely raises some interesting questions and things that have not been answered well by the mainstream. On the other hand, he would probably be the first to tell you that some of his things are theories that are tentative. You know, it's like there's uh, hey, the evidence here doesn't fully add up. Here is what seems to suggest. This is what I think. The reality is that we're all trying to, there's a ton of guesswork involved and you're absolutely right that the more you go back into the past, the more guesswork is involved. So I tend to be very, just stay open, look at what new evidence pop up, see how far, uh, how far we can support theory and how far a theory is very likely that it's going to be changed because something doesn't add up. And so I, I just try to kind of keep my mind open to if I find one day I discover enough evidence to convince me of something fully, boom, it's done. But otherwise, I'm like, oh, it seems to be heading this way, but who knows, you know? So I, I, try, I try not to have strong opinions about stuff that I'm not fully sure of. That's probably good advice just in it's, general. It's interesting. We seem to, we seem to think very similarly but i think we come to very different conclusions um i mean i don't know that, if we can, because i don't even know if i come to a lot of conclusions some of the time sometimes you know the conclusions i come to is if i'm really convinced of something i'll come to a conclusion the rest of the time i'll be like eh you know it's like i see some elements here they seem to point one way or another but am i convinced fully of one conclusion or another no not really i don't see enough evidence for that yeah, no, especially uh, the further back you go. Yeah, it's, absolutely. Um, one last question. So I apologize if you answered this, uh, but your beliefs in religion, um, the further I go back, you know, the more there seems to be a core to all of these religions that they're stemming from a 
singular source. It kind of seems that way. And so, uh, I don't know, do, do you think there's something to that? I mean, if, if there, all of these religions seem to kind of point in the same direction, are they pointing to something or pointing to nothing? You know, I mean, singular source, I think, is an ambiguous enough term that it could mean all sorts of things. So as far as is there something probably greater than us, well, doesn't take much to be greater than us, you know? <laughs> so it's like the odds that, I mean, I've seen in my life enough weird stuff to convince me that what we know about the universe is a fraction compared to what there is to know. And, uh, and so in that sense, I'm very... I don't draw conclusions per se about stuff that, again, I'm, I can't be sure about, but, but I'm also extremely open to the fact that the universe is way more complicated than anything that I could possibly have an understanding of right now. So it's um, it's one of those where I try to, yeah, I try not to go too hard on a conclusion when it comes to religious stuff, especially being a religious stuff that applies to behavior in society right here, right now, well, I can observe it. I can make a judgment call about cosmic origin things where, of course, I don't have a direct experience. That's where I tend to be a lot more tentative. Yeah. Um, all right. Yeah. All right. Well, you. thank you for your time. Yeah. Take care. Um, I was actually, do you, do you, uh, Graham Hancock talks about the, um, I was watching, uh, uh, one of his, his shows recently with the great, the great flood and how mm -hmm. there's all, yep. all like these different, um, civilizations essentially had like this great flood story. Is that the kind of thing that is just, that's too far back to kind of be in your domain or do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, there is some evidence that for the whole younger Darius hypothesis that like, I forget the exact time, I think it's about 12,000 years ago. Graham has the theory that like a comet struck Earth and that it's reflected in some pieces of evidence that may have dramatically shifted uh, history as we know it, causing all sorts of floods and chaos in, uh, in the world. There's something to that that's interesting. There are definitely legitimate questions that But there's just no proof, no proof of it to really get into your hey, kind of wheelhouse. Proof is a big word. You know right. what I mean? It's like there are pieces of evidence that make you go, huh, that's interesting. But from there to proof, there's a jump. Right. right. Okay, we got another caller. One moment, please. Hello. Thanks for calling Low Value Mail. One second. Hey, Danny. Hey, what's up? Just patching you through and you're on with Danielle. Go ahead. Hey, I just wanted to know what you think about like uh, Atlantis and like ancient civilizations and stuff like uh, Gobekli Tepe. I don't know if I pronounced that right. Yeah, but, like that one uh, is, uh, being around for a lot longer. Yeah, that one is a trippy one. The, like, that's an example where all those theories make you really you take a break and look because the whole uh, Gobekli Tepe thing is uh, it rewrites history one way or another. You know, it's like because we have something from long before the time when we thought it was possible for a society to organize labor to build on such a massive scale. So there are a couple of things. Either the stuff that we believed about hunters and gatherers is simply not true, and there are more complex hypotheses there, or maybe the timeline is off. And there were indeed civilizations that span much further back than we think of. So that to me is a perfect example of something that while it doesn't fully answer some of the questions we have, 
it does raise a big question mark in terms of the official narrative of the way prehistory has been taught. It throws a wrench into that story. It really makes you think that either some of the stuff we're taught is flat out wrong, or at least the timeline may be off. And can something kind of be, uh, I guess, unearthed that would would kind of confirm that? Like, is, is there, uh, you know, or is that just, it'll be speculative for the most part? I mean, up until a few years ago, before they even started digging up that site, we didn't have any evidence for that stuff in the same uh, solid way. So yeah, right. it's entirely possible that as we discover more things, we, we find out more evidence that changed the way we write history. All right. Um, all right. Anything else, caller? Uh, yeah, no, just the same thing, like uh, the flood nips being there. Like I know you were on Joe Rogan um, and he had Randall Carlson and um, uh, Graham Hancock on and they, they kind of are very into that stuff. Yep. So no, that's all. It's a great story. It's a great, it's a very interesting theory for sure. All right. Thanks, caller. Do you ever, um, this is more from the religious element, um, and, and thank you again for your time. I, I really do appreciate it. But do, do you have, a, like, because obviously religion and history converge, right? And are there, like, is there a, a figure that's too prominent in, say, like, religious texts where you wouldn't cover it necessarily, if that makes sense? Do you know what I mean? Sure. I mean, most of the founders of modern religions, there's no evidence that they ever lived. Right. You know? Like the and but those are stories that you really don't want to touch because you just piss off everybody. Right. Like you don't want to do a thing on like Muhammad never existed, I guess. But you don't really do you don't do that though. You you'd only do them when they do exist, I guess. So Yeah, I tend to go on stories where I feel a little more confident. But yeah, especially when you go far back and you know, it it depends also on the religion. Because in Buddhism, if you say, Oh, Buddha never existed, nobody cares really, because Buddhism not rooted on the historical reality of that tale it's like whether buddha lived or not who cares it's more about do certain principles do they serve your life or not so it's not a you know you could make that argument say look the sources come from 150 years later and they look kind of shady so who knows what really is real and nobody would bat an eyelash but if you start arguing, uh, look we don't really have solid evidence that jesus existed you you know, you we, might as well just grab a hammer and. <laughs> I had that guy on actually maybe a month ago. His name's uh, Robert M. Price. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but yeah, he, it's you know <laughs> people because he's like yeah because he's like once you start touching those topics, he's like you never get out alive. Yeah, you know? he used to be a Baptist minister, and then yeah. the more he had like you know he has two degrees in history, and the more he looked into it, he was just like Jesus potentially never existed. And that's kind of, yeah, and he's a bit of a heretic. Okay, we got a call here. Uh, I think this is from a comedian friend of mine. So let's uh, let's see. He's been trying to call in. One moment, please. JJ. Yo, how's it going? Hey, what's up? One second. I got to patch you through to Danielle. Up. Yeah. All right, JJ. JJ, go ahead. You're on. This is a very, I, uh, very funny comedian friend uh, of mine, JJ. Daniele, uh, nice, to, nice to meet you, my man. Good to meet you, too. Uh, I just want to say um, I'm actually a big fan. I listen to you and Duncan talk a lot. I'm more interested in the Buddhism approach and the mindfulness. I, I'll give you a little quick history of me as I'm choking on a carrot. The, Danny is a good friend of mine, and they all think I'm an idiot. 
but I'm I'm probably the highest value male that you're going to speak <laughs> with tonight in form of like. So I, I they're going to like joke about me because I'm a comedian who does very dirty humor, but I am, and as someone who doesn't like to say how brilliant I am when it comes to like meditating and Taoism, because then we know that I'm a charlatan, but that's not the truth. I, I do love when you and Duncan really get into it to the point, I just will say this and then I will go um, to the point where you were talking about all the little things that you do. You never saw uh, any one of those things help you out. Then one day you just wake up and it's just like a little percentage here, a little percentage here from meditating from cold plunging, from everything like that. So I, I am truly a big fan. I'm not being a troll. I, I have one question, though, for you. Go ahead. Go. Okay. Okay. I, I, th- I thought I was going to get a profound response. My bad. Um, <laughs> is it? <laughs> is it possible that what we're going through today, and I think someone kind of touched on it, has happened before, like there has been the internet, there has been like a, such an advanced civilization, or is that just like crazy talk? Like, is this possible that that existed? I mean, uh, you know, like that's basically like a, the solar the solar yeah. flare idea that there's like yeah. a solar flare. You lose like two generations. You lose all like everything's on hard drives. Nothing's on paper, and just in two generations, you lose everything. Right, essentially. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, because, I mean, it's just crazy. Like when you do, you know, again, uh, when I listen to guys like you and whomever it is talking about stuff, like I I don't want to say their names and like quote you incorrectly, but there's always that idea that in my mind that something like this existed very close to what it was, however long it could have been, like, you know, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of years ago. But, you know, like we can get wiped out at any time from an asteroid, right? We can, There could be a super volcano that wrecks us all. And then it starts all over again. And then in a million years, something this civilization exists. I mean, that's possible? I mean, or is that just crazy? I think it's definitely possible. Uh, you know, civilization rests on a very thin layer. We think of it as this super solid thing. It's not, you know, really wouldn't take much, especially for a civilization like ours that's so interconnected. So uh, a big collapse would be a global collapse, wouldn't just be in one place and not in another. So yeah, it's definitely possible. Mm. Uh, is there super solid evidence that that happened? I'm not completely sold. You know, I know some people are. I'm like, yeah, it's possible for sure. And there's some stuff that makes you wonder about the timeline. That's about as far as I go. But I I definitely don't rule it out. Yeah. Okay. Um, And then I have one more other question. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go go ahead, JJ. Okay. And then I'll leave you at this. Uh, I don't know if you want to hang up or whatever. So I really do uh, respect guys like you and Duncan so much. I listen to Jack Cornfield, uh, you know, and I'm a huge Alan Watts fan. My question to you is someone in my forties, I am extreme and you don't have the answer, but I'm curious to know what your thought is. I am excru- extremely fearful of the idea of death, that everything just goes to black and that's it. Like that scares the shit out of me. Would love to hear your, you know, <laughs> Can you give me some comfort? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I relate. 
I relate. I understand. It's like, uh, I mean, I think anybody who is honest with themselves and really give it a thought, it's like a really damn scary concept, right? It's like we get mad if so we get... scary. Totally. So I get it completely. Um, I think like a couple of things that have changed my perspective a little bit. I've had some experiences that are weird enough and you know i don't have any solid evidence of something that certainly convinced me of one something or another but i've had enough weird experiences where people close to me have died and mm -hmm. in, in objective way i've seen stuff that i was like okay that's a weird one i don't know what to do with it where it did make me feel like there's probably more than what we know there's what that is, I don't know. But I don't think if you're, you know, of course, I don't have proof. But if you ask me to make a bet, do I think that life as we know it is the beginning and the end of it all? I don't think so. I've seen and felt things where enough times, enough of them where I'm like, yeah, I get the hints that there's more than material reality. That's right. awesome. Uh, I appreciate this. And and I just wanted to say, uh, unfortunately, you're going to have to go back to the lower educated minds after this call. Have a great night. <laughs> Thanks, JJ. JJ, everybody. <laughs> very, very funny comedian, good friend of mine. Um, all right, we're, we're going to wrap this up very shortly. I uh, I have a, a couple of questions that I wanted to do. This is from um, Anthony. He says, of all the historical figures you've researched, what one has surprised you the most? So the one, uh, my all-time favorite, one that I love to death, and it's a different story because so many of the stories that we cover are murderous and bloody and warfare and this and that and the other. And this instead is a happy story for once. I covered the life of this one Zen monk from the 1400s EQ, who's an absolute hilarious guy. He just, his main passion in life were in no particular order, women drinking and zen and he was <laughs> just nice. regularly clashing with established authority even within zen monasteries he was funny to a level that is just like he was a born comedian and at the same time he's really insightful really deep somebody who really enjoyed life and made people around him enjoy life what was his name uh eq i-k-k-y-u Oh, okay. And did a couple of episodes about him, and is by far my favorite historical figure of all times. Really? And where did he reside? So he was in Japan. He was born, I think, in thirteen nine, either thirteen ninety one or thirteen ninety four. I can remember right now. And then he lived through a good chunk of the fourteen hundreds because he died in his late eighties. Oh wow! And uh, man, I love that guy so much. He's just oh. such a breath of fresh air because <laughs> so much of history can be depressing and heavy, and these, and you just look at his story and it's as good as it gets. Have you ever uh, covered, or at least I'm sure you know of Angkor in um, in Cambodia, like the in the civilization? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have Do you have any like insight into that? Because it's very crazy. I, I've been there before. It was one of the biggest civilizations, I think, like in mm -hmm. the world at the time, right? Yeah. Like, I think they said that it was bigger when it was around. It was bigger than London. Yeah. Like the actual size yeah. of it was bigger than London at the time. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. H how do civilizations like that? I mean, I guess, how do they come and go? Because I guess there can be some corollary to now. You know, a lot of people, yeah. the doomers are calling for the end of the American empire and all that stuff. How does that happen? 
a lot of it, not always, but a lot of it tend to be environmentally related, um, either over-exploiting our resources or the climate changes and the society, particularly because it built so large, it has a harder time adapting to some of the changes taking place. And so in Cambodia in particular was brutal because they got a period of both intense drought and flooding, which is like, wait, which give me one or the other, right? right. It's like they would get this intense drought and then when it would rain, so they would structure everything to maximize uh, wa water absorption. And then the sky would open up and it would rain like, crazy level where it would flood the whole place and then they so they go back okay now we have a lot of water we need to adapt to these and then they get another drought and so the back and forth in the climate while i don't think it was the only explanation it definitely plays a role and when you look at the collapse of most civilization usually there are environmental explanations at play yeah interesting there's um i'm sure you've heard this this uh mark twain quote um, history never repeats itself, but it does often rhyme. Yeah. Do you do you see that a lot? Well, I mean, I think human nature is human nature, right? It's like culture shape us. There are different cultures at different times and all that type of stuff. But at the same time, the reality is that there are certain things that are universals. There are certain behaviors, certain desires, certain things of what makes us human that are true today, were true 20,000 years ago, and will be true in who knows when. Uh, at the same time, all the conditions around us are changing at the speed of light. So clearly, yeah, it, it doesn't repeat. Definitely, it's not going to repeat the same, but there are going to be some patterns that apply because our minds haven't really changed all that much. Right. And do you see anything happening now that you can kind of, you see like a kind of corollary to something that happened like do you ever see stuff that happens now and you go like this is just like this yeah. thing that happened yeah. like 800 years ago in some yeah. place i mean when you look at like for example environmental issues today the fact that we clearly we have plenty of smart people around the world who realize that we are dealing with challenging times and we still can do a damn thing about it uh, seems to echo the same story that I've seen in a bunch of civilizations who experience serious drama coming up, where these guys are not stupid. They're really smart. They build complex civilizations. They see this low-moving catastrophe heading their way and still seeing it, having time, knowing about it, they still can't do a damn thing about it. And, and uh, what were the examples of that in, in the past? So, for example, I mean, there's a million, but like if you look at uh, oh, this, this isn't like a, there's not like one of these. This is we just keep doing this over and over again. Yeah. I mean, if you look at like the American Southwest, for example, in the, you know, many of the tribes that lived in the area, they built civilization on a very large scale. They were very successful and show few signs of warfare. So you're like, oh, these guys are doing fantastic. And then you fast forward a couple of hundred years and warfare is everywhere, their population collapse, starvation and drama, and you're like, what just happened? And a lot of it is that, you know, their population started booming, their level of resources still could support the population, so the population keeps growing, and then uh, as they are coming to a place where the relationship between population and resources is getting a little challenging, their resources collapse because of environmental factors. And now you have way more people than you can support. And guess what? When people go hungry, bad things start happening. Yeah, that's uh, 
That's pretty scary. You don't uh, have any prediction on whether that's going to happen. I guess you can't really because of the environmental element. Yeah, it's complicated. And I mean, it's clear that we're going into hard times. What it means could be anything. You know, it could be hard times like, oh, you're going to see a decline in standards of living and some issue that make our life 10% worse, which is like, eh, it's annoying, but whatever. Yeah. Or it could be very dramatic. We don't really know. Are, are you a proponent of the fourth turning? What's the fourth turning? The fourth turning. It's a book by Neil Howe. He's like a demographer. Basically, he says that uh, the there's cycles, basically seasons um, throughout. Like uh, basically, every twenty years is its own season. There's four seasons, and every eighty years, it it basically they they play out the same. It's like this cycle of eighty years. And he 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 essentially predicted a lot of the stuff that happened with COVID and all this stuff. Not specifically, but just like sure. all these things would happen just based on the fact that there hadn't been anything in a while, and we're currently in this uh essentially the fourth turning which is what he calls it and that this is the one of like the maximum like disruption and chaos and but at the end of it it at like once you get through it it's like you know springtime and everything's blooming but it's very turbulent and essentially he what he believes is we're at the beginning of this 20 year period that doesn't sound good but yeah no, I mean, <laughs> the reality is i don't know could be yeah. i would have look at what evidence he based it on more, but interesting for sure. Okay. Um, all right. We're, we're going to wrap this up. Uh, one last question from, from Anthony and, and then I'll let you go. And I, again, I appreciate you very much taking your time. Which uh, historical figure do you feel is criminally underappreciated and which one would you say is overhyped? Mm, I think most of the people we know about are overhyped because the reality is that most of the stuff that we focus on tend to be power players kings queens whatever were i mean if you think about any society you look at like who's in like the past few presidents or the it's like among all the people in us i would want to hang out with would i want to hang out with any of the past few presidents fuck no you know these are not people and the reality is that history is going to remember mostly those guys and hardly anybody else. So to me, it's like what we focus on in history sometimes is such a thin layer of individuals and often not the most interesting ones that most of the big names are overhyped because most of these guys, I mean, so much of history is the story of a bunch of gangsters fighting each other for power, you know, and it's like, you know, these are most of these people are psychopaths, you know, most of these people are so addicted to power and wealth that they would run over their grandma in the name of that. And that's how they make their name in history. So I think like the majority of the people we focus on in history are people that are highly overhyped. Right. And what about the uh, The underrated? I mean, I think, of course, there's probably some of the most unappreciated ones are fantastic individuals who will be throughout history that whose names we'll never know. Right. You'll just never, you know, they were maybe just fantastic, but on a, you know, a local level. Exactly. Or something given like what I was telling you, like the EQ guy is such a fantastic model for living. His attitude is so brilliant. And incidentally, he even had a big impact on the cultural life of Japan. But I mean, how many people know of a guy like that, you know? And I think there are a lot of individuals like that throughout history. Most of them will find them in the footnotes if we find them at all. Right. And so how did he, his story persist? Like, how did his make it through when I would imagine many people like his at some point 
kind of just, you know, hit a dead end essentially and you never. Yeah. I think he had a couple of uh, reasons why he becomes famous. You know, one level, many of the people who hang out with him, who thought he was brilliant and wanted to learn from him, they became some of the most important figure in Japanese cultural life, from people who started tea ceremony to people who revolutionized theater. To So, you know, he had this entourage of people who had a big impact on uh, stuff that people will remember down the road. Um, uh, he... In his later life, he was able to, at a time when in the middle of civil war, so much of Kyoto was destroyed, he was able to rebuild some of the big Zen monastery through his connections. And so there's a direct line from him to some of the traditions that are still present. So things like that. But honestly, it's chance, you know, it's yeah. like at different people, nobody would have remembered him if he did. He would have been the same guys, just as brilliant, just as fun, and nobody would have known him at all. Essentially just has the right right disciples almost to a degree. Yeah. Um, okay, we're, we're going to wrap this up. Where can people find you if they want uh, one more? So in a, in a moment of uh, rare intelligence, which doesn't happen often for <laughs> me, I created a link tree, you know, the site that yeah, has yeah. all possible sites. So I have a link tree, which of course link tree is spelled it's l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e so they separate it and then forward slash my name daniele bolelli uh daniele is like daniel with an e at the end and bolelli is b-o-l-e-l-l-i that has all my links from a youtube channel i just started for history on fire i'm gonna be putting more material there the do you do any video uh, content for for history yeah on that's what i just did for the first time a month okay. ago i this one uh, well, a funny video i created this video about alexander the great uh, drinking misadventures yeah which are pretty <laughs> nice. funny and uh i'll do more and so i'll try to do that on youtube um uh, you know the link to the podcast link to the various social media and patreon uh, substack all that good stuff all that stuff okay everybody go definitely uh go check out uh, your youtube because everybody's watching on youtube uh and on rumble shout out to everybody watching on rumble all right thank you very much everybody uh thank you for watching calling in all that stuff listening we'll be back next week with joey b tunes have a good night